Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Hey, this is Dre, and welcome to Pod Save the People. And this week we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. And then I'm joined by Nora McInerney, who hosts the podcast Terrible. Thanks for asking. The thing that I'm reminded of nearly every time I do an interview is the way that we try to rank suffering and how it is our natural inclination to try to fix it. So the advice for this week is about apologies. When we apologize, we acknowledge what we did that was either received or experienced in a negative way, but we do it in a way that is about our actions. So I apologize to a friend this week, and my first response was going to be, I apologize for how you received that, and I'm apologize that you felt that way. But that actually takes all the responsibility off of what I did and actually puts a responsibility on the way that they were approximate to what I did. So what I said was, I apologize for coming off as self-righteous and I apologize for not hearing you in the way that you expected to be heard. That wasn't my intent, but I apologize for that. And I had to remind myself that a true apology acknowledges the action you did. And we hope that the person will receive the apology and accept it. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam's Way on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-I-Y on Twitter. I'm going to start saying Clint Smith Roman numeral three. Just to change it up. <laughs> just to spice it up. That will stop nothing. <laughs> All right, y'all. So I uh, know that this episode will air on my dad's birthday. It would have been my dad's 67th birthday. Miss you very much, dad. But I had a full-on laugh-till-I-cried moment a few days ago when I realized that my dad used to sneak me into or let me watch rated R movies, but I realized after all these years that all of them had a social justice message. Like hmm. it was like higher learning and boys in the hood. And like, I thought he was the cool parent. And all of a sudden I realized he was basically like trying to give me an education. And I laughed so hard because I just wish he were here for me to tell him like, wow, really? You were sneaking all along. But it made me wonder what you all's favorite rated R movies were as kids. I think for me, it probably would have been... The Matrix. That's a good one. I think The Matrix came out in what ninety nine, so I was I was eleven, and I think my pops brought me. It was like he's my dad's so funny. Shout out to Clint Smith Jr. out here, but he like everything becomes very dramatic. Like he like acts like he's Denzel Washington because he watches <laughs> like way too many Denzel Washington movies, and and so he's like he's like son. I have to talk to you about something. And I'm like, oh, man, he's trying to give me the... I'm 11, so I'm like, are we getting the birds and the bees talk? I don't need that right now. Please, no. Um, and he was like, tonight, we're going to see The Matrix. And I was so hyped. I was like, oh, my God, Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne. It's getting crazy. I mean, shout out um, to Keanu Reeves also for continuing to be a non-problematic white man. Shout out to Keanu Reeves. But I remember I saw that movie, and 
I was just like, this is the most incredible, dopest thing I've ever seen. What I'm hearing is that 11-year-old Clint had good taste because The Matrix is still a classic and Keanu Reeves is still a hero. So I don't think I've watched Matrix since then. I, this makes me really want to go back and, and watch. I recently rewatched Matrix 1, 2, and 3 because I think it's on uh, Netflix now. So it was free nice. and easy to watch. Um, but I hadn't what caught... Was 3? I don't remember 3. Yeah, it wasn't very good. The first was good. The second was all right. Like 3, by that point, it was sort of like we already got the point. Uh, but I hadn't realized like the whole underlying like social justice themes to the Matrix because I was just too young when it came out. So all the good rated R movies have them. Yeah, I mean, so this is like one of the only movies depicting a future where like it's majority black and brown, hmm. which was interesting. I hadn't realized like the backstory that it was supposed to be apparently Will Smith and not Keanu Reeves who played Neo. So. That was fascinating. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne. There's a video online of William Smith explaining why he passed up on The Matrix because he was he made Wild Wild West, which oh. is uh, not a classic. So you know, but uh, <laughs> but shout out to shout out to Big Willie. <laughs> and did you just call him William Smith? William <laughs> Smith. <laughs> did I say William Smith? Million, I think you said Smith William Smith. Smith. <laughs> that was great. I'm just trying to call that man by his proper name. So, so wait. So the so the last piece of the Matrix uh, was that I didn't realize that Cornell West was in the Matrix. Did y'all know this? Yeah. No. <laughs> Absolutely. I had no idea. He was like on the city council or whatever the council was that they had. Yep. He was like on the council. I was like, wow. Like he was an actor. Like I didn't know. <laughs> I'll never forget. It's funny. I need. I need to call Teray about this because uh, our like cousins or somebody snuck us in to see a thin line between love and hate. Ah! I'll never forget it. <laughs> Inappropriate. And it's like <laughs> there are definitely sex scenes in a thin line between love and hate. And I remember we. How old were you? Uh, it came out in '96. I was born in '85. <laughs> I just remember being snuck into a thin line between love and hate. We watched it and like we didn't tell. I think we told Calvin we were gonna go see something else. We definitely told, him. but he found out and he was heartbroken. He was like, I remember him at the house being like, "My kid's innocence has been ripped away in the movie theaters." And me and Trey were like, "Ah, sorry about that, Dad." I mean, and a thin line between love and hate. I guess it's sort of a classic of the genre that it's in, but it's it, a black classic. Yeah, but it's not like the best movie you've ever seen. You know, like it was Lim Lim Whitfield, right? Uh-huh. And Martin Lawrence. And Martin Lawrence. Uh yeah, but I'll never forget like his not even disappointment. He was like hurt that we snuck in to see that movie. Aw. What's yours, Sam? My parents let me watch rated R movies, like even when I was relatively young. So there wasn't Sam like was a, just out here living. I was out here living at an early age, but <laughs> I, I do there was they did draw the line at like um gratuitous violence so whatever like a movie like had gratuitous violence like those are the movies i couldn't see but like the the other aspects of rated r movies like that they didn't really have as much a problem with wow you you were the cool kid the rest of us were some nerds apparently right oh and also happy pride happy pride happy pride boop, 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 boop. hey happy pride how did you all ring in um the the celebration as the gay person on the pod i will just say that for pride, I painted my nails gold. Yeah, hey. let's see. They're gone now. I took it off. It was so. Oh. The thing about fingernail polish is that it um it distracts me. I don't know how people wear it every day. It like really, I like couldn't stop touching it. And then I'm in the salon, and um I didn't realize like fingernail polish doesn't dry immediately, <laughs> and I almost lost my mind waiting under that little the little dryer thing. I was like, get me out of here. But it was cool to just see so many. I went to a couple parties yesterday with so many black gay men. 
uh, so many black trans men and women, and it was dope to just see the community come together. And it's a reminder that Pride is still resistance. Uh, it is cool. You know, I know that the community is split about the commercialization of Pride. I will say, uh, as a kid, I saw no rainbows. I saw nobody who was a proud ally or like who was living. It just wasn't something to be public about. So I will always veer toward, like, I appreciate the rainbows and the stickers and the clothes hmm. and all that stuff for the younger generation to see a community around them that can live out loud because I remember being a kid and seeing none of those things uh, in Baltimore. So happy pride, everybody. Happy pride indeed. And now the news. So for my news, I want to talk about uh, a moment that I imagine many of us saw, uh, millions of people saw last week during the second installation of the Democratic debates. Um, And that was when Senator Kamala Harris had a moment, we'll say, with Vice President Joe Biden about his history of opposing federally sanctioned busing. And she had this really remarkable moment, one of the most potentially powerful moments that I've seen in a presidential debate in my adult lifetime, where she talked about how she was the beneficiary of busing in Berkeley, California, and that without busing that was meant to integrate the school that she went to, she was among the second class of Black children who were integrating the school, that she would not be in the position that she is today. And it was something that was very purposeful and was very personal and also has led to a lot of interest. She's gone up in the polls. She's raised a lot of money. And I think it was a really compelling moment for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And so there's a lot to say about the political aspect of it. But what I'm interested in is the historical piece of it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of busing just to sort of ground us in that. So uh, as always, Vox has some great reporting on this and they do so well explaining the sort of essence of these things. So in 1954, the Supreme Court ruled in Brown v. Board of Education that school segregation was unconstitutional and it mandated that schools begin the process of integration. However, as a result of high amounts of state sanctioned residential segregation, many cities and states refused to integrate, and the courts and federal government had to step in and intervene when they realized that localities would not do this on their own. And there were a range of ways that people attempted to address the issue of integration and busing, as we're talking about today, was one of those things. Um, The way busing typically worked is that Black students were driven to predominantly white schools in neighboring communities, and sometimes it happened, but less often white students were driven to predominantly Black ones. Many busing orders were mandated in the late 60s and early 70s after groups like the NAACP filed and won school desegregation lawsuits. And busing was often the sort of last resort, the thing that they used to to say, this is how we're going to get these Black children into these wealthier, wider schools. Busing was often a last resort. And it was used as a means of integrating these schools with the hopes that it would not only end state-sanctioned segregation, uh, but also that it would give Black students and white students equal access to resources and opportunities, since the best resources were often concentrated in white schools. And that is not to be confused with Black children's proximity to white students being the thing that makes them better. It is that these schools were uh, better resourced, had better opportunities, and that Black students' presence in these spaces would give them opportunities for academic and upward mobility that they might not otherwise have. It's important to know that busing programs weren't just opposed in Southern states. They were met with fierce resistance in Northern states and places like Detroit and places like Boston. There were riots. There were people who boycotted the entire school district and started sending their kids to private school. They started sending their kids to entirely different school districts. They moved entire school districts shut down rather than having to integrate. That happened a lot in Virginia and other places. And parents essentially claimed that forced busing wouldn't work because the bus ride was inconvenient or it was so long or it's not natural or all of these sort of 
metonyms for white parents not wanting to have their children go to school with black kids. And so it was, as many things, you know, we're opposed to busing was a stand-in for we're opposed to having black children in our schools, but they were able to do it without saying that directly. It should be noted that there was black opposition to busing and that, you know, black people are not a monolith. Some people like busing, some people didn't, but that that was not because black people wanted to continue with segregation. It is because black people were like, well, is busing the best way to do it? Oftentimes when students were being bused, the teachers in these communities would lose their jobs, teachers in black schools. Sometimes what would happen is that people were like, well, why don't you invest more money into our schools rather than just sending our kids to white schools? And so it's complicated. And there will be a lot more to say as we move forward. And obviously there's a lot of political implications, but I think it was important to sort of ground us in that history as we begin to think about this. I went to majority white private schools, and I will never forget sitting in eighth grade social studies talking about African-American people as that was the textbook that we were currently in and talking about busing and sitting there as the only black student in my class while my white classmates talked about how their moms took them out of Ledoux Public Schools, Clayton Public Schools, and other white affluent school districts because it was, quote, getting too dangerous or a bad element was coming or it was time for us to leave. And these people were literally talking about family members of mine, about kids that I grew up with in church and in my neighborhood who were availing themselves of busing desegregation laws in St. Louis. So, Clint, you're absolutely right to point us to the historical context of this debate and the fact that that history is not all that old. What is also true, though, is that when I talk to a lot of Black educators around my hometown of St. Louis, a lot of them are very frustrated by busing. A lot of them feel like resources were pulled from communities that were never restored, that longer-term solutions to, A, fully integrate communities, because we know that after busing happened, there was suburban sprawl, so it wasn't there wasn't true integration because white people just moved elsewhere, um, and B, to restore pride and power to inner-city public schools never happened. And so I think... For me, ultimately, the question is about how robust, how nuanced, and how thoughtful education plans are going to be that are put forth by every single candidate, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, everyone, how they are going to address not just integration, but equity across the board. So this was a fascinating debate. I mean, both debates were fascinating, but I think that exchange between Senator Harris and Vice President Biden really stood out because it represented such a dramatic range of perspectives and experiences and ideas that, you know, at the same time as we're talking about issues that have rarely been talked about, issues that are really on the forefront of racial justice, things like reparations, things like closing the racial wealth gap, at the same time as we're having conversations about how to make investments that have never been made and have been long overdue, we're still relitigating things that have been litigated for decades and decades and decades. We're still talking about integration in schools, right? We're still dealing with a reality where many of the gains that have been made since Brown v. Board of Education, in part because of policies like busing, have been repealed, right? We see the numbers that when you look at school segregation, schools are more segregated now than they have been since the 1970s. So we're now having to deal with having to address areas where we've actually moved substantially backwards. And many of the ideas, I think, and the past positions of people like Vice President Biden and others have contributed to the reality that we live in today. And I think what Senator Harris made clear was, you know, have contributed to um, not only like personally hurting folks, but 
creating a, a environment we are in today where schools are more segregated, where busing has been dramatically curtailed as a strategy to integrate schools and as a consequence where schools have become more segregated. So, you know, it is fascinating that how much diversity of, of thought and policy there is even within the Democratic Party on this issue, not to mention the Republicans who are, you know, probably all even worse on this. So I think that was fascinating. I think the second piece about busing in particular that stood out to me was the language that's often used around busing still reflects some of the underlying biases that were in place 50 or 40 years ago that communities that oppose this used in their rhetoric. Words like forced busing, for example, you look at Lee Atwater's reflection on the Southern strategy. And forced busing was a term that even he states explicitly was used as a way of furthering a racist agenda in ways that sounded less racist or non-racist uh, that larger groups of white people would support. So I think in part, this is like, how are we thinking about the words that we're using to describe busing and making sure that we're not sort of repeating the language that makes the problem worse. And I think the second thing is like, we really shouldn't have to continue to have a conversation about integration in 2019, but here we are. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing, I know Bernie Sanders put out a plan to address the inequity in school funding between black and white schools and included a range of other things in there. Um, but I'm also looking forward to seeing what some of the other candidates are going to propose and what their position actually is on school integration. i just say a couple of things. One is uh, it was a powerful moment to see Kamala push Biden so skillfully. I mean, Biden just didn't even know. None of us knew what was happening. We were like, okay, why did she say, I don't think you're racist? And then it was like, bam, bam, bam. And it was, it was just, she got him. In that vein, though, it is only fair that if we ask and challenge Biden about his record, that Kamala will also have to be asked and challenged about her own. And there are a lot of things about her time as a prosecutor that she just has not answered questions about in a public space. We met with her. And I got a sense for how she might answer them, but she needs to do it in public. So I'm interested to see what that looks like. And I think that the game is on. I think that the next debate will probably be even more intense than this last one. I will say, I didn't even know Swalwell, but Swalwell was coming out with some zingers for people. <laughs> Swalwell was like, I ain't got nothing to lose. Let me just say, all. he was like, pass the torch, fire the police chief. I mean, Swalwell was serious. So that was the debates. Uh, what has been interesting though, is that since the conversation about Biden and busing is that all of a sudden stuff that we'd never seen before came to light. So there were some never before published letters from Biden when he was in the Senate a long time ago. And he said that he like wasn't against busing, but these letters show that that was not true. So uh, one letter that he wrote in 1977, he it, it says, and I quote, my bill strikes at the heart of the injustice of court ordered busing. It prohibits the federal courts from disrupting our educational system in the name of the Constitution where there is no evidence that the governmental officials intended to discriminate. I believe there's a growing sentiment in the Congress to curb unnecessary busing. And then in June of 1977, these are both in 1977, the first one was in March, this one's in June. He wrote, Dear Mr. Chairman, I want you to know that I very much appreciate your help during this week's committee meeting in attempting to bring my anti-busing legislation to vote. Two weeks later, he followed up with the note that said, thank you for your efforts in supporting my bill to curb court order busing. So Sam has already talked about that language and, and what that means, but Biden was actually a really powerful advocate against busing. And, you know, he's already come out and said, like, he supports everything that might help kids go to new school. You know, the next day he did a talk somewhere in front of Black people and was like, I support everything. But it'll be interesting to see what this actually does to him long term. We are so far away from Election Day that there's a question of like, 
Will people even remember? I know a lot of people who saw that were like, yeah, not good. Hope he does it better the next time. So uh, it was definitely a big boost for Kamala. And I'm looking forward to see what's next. So my news is about the NYPD. A report from the Office of the Inspector General in New York City found this past Wednesday that of 2,495 complaints of biased policing, so that's police discrimination, that have been filed against the NYPD over the past five years, exactly zero of those complaints have been sustained. So the police are saying that of the 2,495 complaints of police discrimination, not a single one actually was substantiated, upheld, or resulted in any type of discipline whatsoever for the officers involved. So this is fascinating. Uh, I had not seen data on this issue in particular for the NYPD, but despite sounding outrageous, this is actually not uncommon. So it turns out that complaints of police discrimination are almost never ruled in favor of the person reporting misconduct. So in LA, for example, for the LAPD, 2,782 allegations of bias policing have been reported from 2012 through 2017, and exactly zero, just like in New York, were sustained. So this is really, really important for obvious reasons. First and foremost, if the police discriminate against you and you report them for it, it means you will not be taken seriously and your complaint will not be substantiated. There's a 0% chance of that happening under the status quo. It also was fascinating to read some of the recommendations in this report because I learned something. For example, the Civilian Complaint Review Board in New York City, which is the agency that investigates complaints of misconduct, uh, it actually doesn't currently investigate bias complaints. That is something I didn't know and begs the question, you know, why shouldn't they be investigating this serious issue? Um, the second thing that was interesting was the composition of those complaints. Bias complaints can involve racial discrimination, but they also involve uh, discrimination based on national origin, sex, gender identity, nationality, disability status, and a range of other uh, categories. And yet 68% of all bias complaints in New York City were for racial discrimination specifically. And the largest category of people filing complaints were Black. So I wanted to bring this to the conversation because you know, we often talk about how rare it is for complaints to be sustained. Only one in 13 complaints nationwide is sustained when reported to law enforcement. But for this in particular, it's zero or almost zero for most cities. It's fascinating. One of the things that was interesting is that the department said, you know, we're taking so many steps to like bring police and community together and we're putting body cameras on everyone. What's fascinating about that is while like $40 million have been spent by the federal government and even more by state and local governments to buy and purchase body cameras for their police departments, there's been little to show that these body cameras are effective in reducing police violence, that they are effective in reducing uh, use of force, civilian complaints. There was one study in 2012 that suggested that it did do a little bit of reduction along those lines, but there were only 54 officers who were part of that study. A more recent study, which was done in Washington, D.C., with 2,224 police officers, suggested that there was little to no difference. Also, you know, we have presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg, who is embroiled in his own controversy with an uh, officer-involved shooting there, and the officer did not have his body camera on, which is something that has been an issue on multiple occasions. So we spend all this money giving people body cameras. 
the body cameras are often not on when they should be. And there are a range of other issues in terms of the implementation of these body cameras and how they're being used, or even if they are used, to what extent there is transparency about what will be released and what won't be released. So I don't even know what to say about New York City saying that there's no bias in their policing, essentially, is what they're suggesting. But it does provide an opportunity for us to interrogate some of these practices that we are told is helpful for bringing about better community police relations that actually might not be doing what we think they're doing. Sam, I'm glad that you properly contextualized this so that we're not just pointing the finger at New York City, um, but really recognizing that the flaw is when police continue to investigate themselves and the data that we are supposed to trust is coming from these departments themselves. This is part of the reason why I found Bill de Blasio's moment during the debate so well, downright hilarious when he talked about the progress, the supposed progress of the NYPD and their strong relationship with communities, because obviously we are not seeing a level of transparency or change from the NYPD that should allow any mayor of New York City to pat themselves on the back publicly or privately about supposed progress. But it is also part of the reason why some of the transparency efforts that Mayor Pete pointed to in South Bend are simply not enough. And I appreciate his earnestness uh, during that conversation, but there has to be more depth to this question of how we solve this problem from people who are daring to run for president, let alone those who run cities. At the end of the day, transparency is all well and good, but once again, if the data does not actually tell the truth, just like the data that we're talking about right now, then it's practically useless. Sam already talked about the fact that, you know, when we look at data all across the country, it, the complaints aren't sustained. We actually talked to a, a mayor recently, and the mayor was like, you know, the police chief told me it's a good thing that these aren't sustained because it means that bad things aren't happening in the police department. We were like, ah, like everybody didn't lie, you know, like hundreds of people aren't filing these complaints against the police officers lying. Now, what's also happening in New York City that is a good thing is that there's a charter revision commission that is currently looking at ways to amend the charter in New York City, and they just voted to allow the CCRB, the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which has the power to discipline or recommend discipline for officers in New York City, it just voted to move forward with an amendment to the charter that would allow the CCRB to investigate a false testimony by the police. So when officers lie on the official record, when officers turn in forms that have things that are lies, we think about it with Garner, we think about it with a lot of cases where there's just lying that happens and we know it's happening. That currently doesn't fall within the purview of the CCRB in New York City, and this would actually allow it to happen. Right now, Internal Affairs deals with it, and you can imagine that the New York Times reported that out of 81 tracked cases of false statements referred to the police department by the CCRB since 2010, only two times did the NYPD Internal Affairs Division say that any lying happened. So uh, it'll be good to make an external body in New York City be the arbiter of what happened. And that is some good news. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals 
are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. So the Supreme Court made two really critical decisions in the last week that will have an immense effect on American democracy in the near and far future. They made decisions on gerrymandering and the census. So on the census, the conclusion is not totally a conclusion. What essentially the court said was that the administration did not provide enough justification to add the question on citizenship to the census. So that question is blocked for now. They essentially gave, though, an open door for the administration to be able to come back through the process of litigation and provide different justification for that addition. 
Groups like the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights are reminding all of us that the fight is not over as the question could produce an undercount in immigrant communities and communities of color. And those communities are already estimated to be undercounted. If they're undercounted on the census, then we are not fully represented in the government. In this case, Chief Justice Roberts actually broke with the conservative majority to side with the more liberal judges. On the gerrymandering case, he sided with that conservative majority. The gerrymandering case is a bit more complex, but all in all, the result is scary. So essentially, the court said that federal courts cannot hear cases that are challenging gerrymandered maps. Both parties in the past have used gerrymandering, Republicans and Democrats, but currently it benefits Republicans. There are 22 states right now where those maps benefit Republicans because they hold the governor's mansion and they hold the state legislature. And those are the folks that are determining those maps. Democrats hold about 14 states uh, in the same way. So again, Chief Justice Roberts sided with the conservative court. This really means that on the census, even though we have a reprieve, the fight continues. And on gerrymandering, the fight is substantially harder because the door is closed on judicial challenges to voting maps that have been, quote, warped by politics which means that a critical tool, that of litigation, is essentially rendered useless. I wanted to bring this here because we spent a lot of time trying to fight Brett Kavanaugh, trying to prevent this conservative majority from sitting on the court. And for far too many reasons, lots of which were out of our control, we lost that fight. And this is the result. It means that the SCOTUS fights are going to get more difficult. It means that we have to stay more vigilant. It means that we have to keep fighting and that we have to be aware and understand the nuance that is present in all of these decisions. It's going to be really important to keep supporting organizations that are experts in justice litigation, like the Leadership Conference, like the Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights, and local ones like folks from my hometown, the Arch City Defenders, because they are the ones who are keeping these fights going in the courts and around the courts to make sure they're not forgotten. Something we just have to be mindful of, we kind of got two different ends of the spectrum with the results that we got this past week with the gerrymandering on one end and the census on the other. But a lot of folks who watch the Supreme Court closely and have done so for decades are warning folks not to get too comfortable with uh, John Roberts being the new sort of center of the court, right? And they talk about how Roberts is going to move the court as far to the right as possible without breaking it. He's a tactician, right? And that he has an astute political sensibility and that he knows how to find the balance between continuing to move the court to the right, continuing to erode certain civil liberties, certain human rights, certain things that would lead to massive public outcry without doing it in a way that would become sort of politically combustible. It's just important to be mindful of very few rulings that this court comes out with will be decimating precedent in sort of one fell swoop. A lot of it will be sort of tinkering, eroding, and pushing the court further to the right in ways that we might not see as wholly dramatic in the immediate term, but in the long term, we'll sort of look back and say, wow, where have we come since the Warren court? So there were two things that were interesting about this decision on gerrymandering. The first was the language used to justify the ruling that the Roberts Court made centered around methodological issues, right? It focused on this question of whether there was actually a fair and unbiased way of evaluating whether given congressional or you know state legislative map was too gerrymandered or was not, right? And I think that that's like a methodological question. And 
what this decision does is it says that the federal court should have no role in stepping in to, you know, essentially police what the district should look like instead using a given methodology. But like this is a scientific question, right? And and what the court has done here is essentially thrown their hands up and said, you know, we're not actually going to play any role whatsoever, rather than actually seeking to identify and institutionalize that methodology so that they can actually address the issue at hand. And this is despite progress that has been made from political scientists to actually develop scientific methodologies to test how gerrymandered and skewed a given congressional map might be, right? And so there continues to be progress made in that area. And what the courts have done here is basically shut off the potential of those new innovations in the field contributing to informing interventions through the federal courts to disrupt and block some of those gerrymandered maps. The second piece that's interesting is what this ruling functionally does is it shifts to state legislatures and state courts the power to decide what the maps should actually be, right? Whether or not we're going to have gerrymandered maps that ensure that you know, Republicans win elections, even when Democrats get the majority of the votes, or whether we are going to show up and vote and elect folks who will put a check on that, whether it's electing Democratic governors who will veto those maps from the legislature. Um, in 22 states, you can actually elect Supreme Court justices. So that's really huge too, because as we've seen, even at the state level, you can intervene and rule some of these maps unconstitutional, regardless of whether the federal courts decide to step in. So the ruling is really bad. It's going to contribute to the problem getting worse. And the way to fight back at this point seems to be to really mobilize at the state level to elect people who will put a check on Republicans in the state legislature continuing to skew these maps. Okay, if you remember during the debate, second night, Bernie said that he was against PAC in the court, but that he wanted to rotate members of the court to circuit courts, like to lower courts. And then that'd be a way to make sure there was no supermajority, and then you would just rotate people. And I remember during the debate being like, can somebody send me the... Like, I just have never heard that before, so can somebody send it to me? And in reading about it, this is a pretty new proposal. And what the campaign has said is that the reason that they want to do this is because it would only require an act of Congress. It wouldn't require the Constitution to be changed. So I thought that was interesting. I'm just throwing it out here because we're going to be talking about the elections for a long time because the elections aren't for a long time. So just wanted to add that as we talk about the Supreme Court. But I still am confused about this whole you know, court transition thing that Bernie is proposing. The other thing I'll say is sort of piggybacking off of what Sam said is that I really get worried when people talk about like the single greatest thing or like the most important that, you know, like when people say the prosecutor is the most important part of that, like, I don't think that's true. All the parts are important. The prosecutor can't prosecute something that's not a crime and the lawmakers make up what is a crime. So like all of it matters. And I say that because there were a lot of people in 2016 who said like local is where everything is. If you don't vote local, then da 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 and what we saw was that the president really matters, right? That like, it's a both and. I'm hopeful that in this upcoming election, we'll all just do a better job of recruiting people to run for the things that seem really random. That like, we need to make sure sane people are the clerk of the courts, the sheriffs, Lord knows, the Supreme Court justices. You think about, uh, what's the woman's name, the 31-year-old who just got elected as the Bronx DA? Caban. Caban. You think about Caban. Caban was like, okay, I'm working in the system. It don't work. Let me run. And you're like, let her run. Yes, Caban. Like, we need a million more Cabans and AOC. Like, we just need to find people. And now is the time for people to make the decision to run. 
once we get into 2020 and people are trying to run, it's sort of like a nightmare. But now is the time to start educating people about these random jobs so that if the Supreme Court is going to say, like, you know, we just following what states do, then we're going to be like, okay, cool. And we're going to take over the states. So that's my hope as we go into 2020. So my news about the NBA, I didn't know this, but the NBA has said that they have stopped using the term owner. Uh, the commissioner, the NBA commissioner, said that he understood the delicacy of the word. There have been players who have spoken out against it, and they are now using the term governor. And it was a reminder that what does it mean that we still say, like, oh, he owns that group of guys. Like, he owns a team. It's like, well, you own a group of people. That seems like language that we should not support in the public space, that we should not encourage, and that we certainly shouldn't solidify as just practice. I didn't know this has happened. He said that they'd actually stopped doing it a year or so ago. But I think, like, a TMZ reporter asked the commissioner about it, and he said it on the record for the first time. Uh, so I thought that was really powerful. It made me think about all the other sports that still hold on to this. And it made me think about this incredible essay that I've definitely shouted out before, but it's called In Defense of Looting. It was the first critical essay that I read during the protest, came out in August of 2014. And I say it because uh, one of the things that I took away from the article that I'll never forget is the author writes about the American obsession with property. The claim made in the article is this notion that like, there's no social change that's ever happened in the country that was not rooted in an attack on property. But what made me think about it in this context was just how much the language of property and ownership, insert capitalism, is just normal to us that like, we're like, yeah, he owns a team. You're like, what does he mean he owns a team? Like, he doesn't own a group of people. Nobody owns a people. Nobody should own people in this day and age. So I just wanted to bring that here. I thought it was interesting and I hadn't heard about it. You know, language matters. Just this week, I sent up a tweet to NPR to ask them why in 2019, I was still hearing them use the word illegal immigrants instead of undocumented people. Thankfully, they responded and said that this was a mistake and that it is actually their policy to use the phrase undocumented. But it is a reminder that words shape our thinking and thinking shapes our actions. There is nothing too small when it comes to this. And I think a lot of people are, feel that this is about PC culture and they're annoyed by the idea that something as simple as a word to describe the people who fund a team could be taken issue with in this way. And yet, if folks speak about sports teams through the lens of ownership, then people will behave in ways that correspond with that. This is the exact kind of response that we saw with Colin Kaepernick in his peaceful protest. Folks thought him inappropriate. Folks thought him downright disrespectful, not just of America, but of, again, his owners or the team's owners. So fixing the language changes the lens through which people can see race in America. And with better language, we can construct a better understanding of not just society, but our behavior in it. So I think it's important that they changed the term from owner to governor. But, you know, that's one step towards a broader goal of racial equity within the league, right? And we still see a reality where, you know, the NBA, most of the governors are white, right? White men. So, you know, like Michael Jordan governs the Charlotte Hornets. We know that the Milwaukee Bucks have Mark Lazary, who's Moroccan-American. Uh, Sacramento Kings have Vivek Ranadive. But, you know, there are 30 teams, and those are three that have governors who are people of color. And we need to do a lot better than that, right? I think changing the term is a first step towards being able to recognize and, and address some of the underlying inequities, not only in the language, but in the outcomes that we see in terms of who's in charge and and who's not within not only the NBA, which is 
doing better than the NFL, but still not doing good enough, but within sports more broadly, especially within the United States. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop And I'm joined by Nora McInerney. She's an author, co-founder of the Hot Young Widows Club, and the host of the podcast, Terrible. Thanks for asking. Nora, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you for having me. I am excited to talk because I'm fascinated by Terrible. Thanks for asking. I'm fascinated by your story and have so much to learn. We can start a couple places. Either, how did you get to Terrible? Thanks for asking. Like, even the title as a show, or... The memoir, No Happy Endings. I'm fascinated equally by both, so we can choose. Well, Terrible Thanks for Asking is actually a book title that was rejected when I wrote my first book. And my first book was written about losing my husband, Aaron, and my father within a couple weeks of each other in 2014. So I am the person who, when you ask how I am for a long time, I would always say fine, like most Americans say, because that's the polite answer. And I would say that even when the honest truth was, well, I just lost the two most important men in my life, the man I've loved since I knew what love was, and the man that I thought I would hopefully be able to spend the rest of my life with. I wanted the title of the book to be terrible, thanks for asking, but the feedback that I got was that it was too negative for a book about my husband dying. <laughs> so so I bookmarked that. I bookmarked that name. And the podcast itself came about because Aaron and I, and really everything comes down to Aaron. I 
had been with Aaron for a year. He had a seizure at work, and it turned out that his seizure was because he had a brain tumor, a really bad brain tumor, a stage 4 glioblastoma, which you don't even have to Google. It's a terrible, terrible brain tumor. And we got married a month later, and our third wedding anniversary was his funeral. So it was a very, very intense time of my life, and... The happiest days of my life, I also think, were mixed in with those hardest days. Aaron and I, we wrote his obituary together before he died. And the opening line was, Permort Aaron Joseph, age 35, died on November 25th, 2014, due to complications from a radioactive spider bite and a years-long battle with a nefarious criminal named Cancer. And his obituary... I will tell you right now, Dory, I did not think they would print it, but a free tip for you and your listeners is that they'll print anything in an obituary because you pay for it. It's an advertisement for your death. So so they printed it and it went viral and people found the blog that I'd been writing when Aaron was sick and people from all over the world started emailing me and sending me messages on Tumblr. And they weren't all people who had just lost a husband. They were just people who had been through something really, really difficult and who just wanted to share that. They just wanted to share the pain that they had felt with another person who would understand it and not tell them that everything happens for a reason or that everything is going to be okay or to tell them to look on the bright side. And I felt a big responsibility with that inbox, and I did spend a lot of time replying for many months. I would reply to pretty much every message that I got. I wanted to do something bigger than just write emails, and one of the people who read that obituary was a literary agent who reached out to me, and I did have the chance to write a memoir. And other than that, I just had a lot of free time to just sit there and feel my own pain, but also to find myself opened up to the pain of others. And one day I sent out a tweet and I said, does anyone in Minnesota make podcasts? And that is a dumb question you could answer with Google. But somebody replied and they said, yes, Hans Buto makes podcasts. And I just clicked on his Twitter handle and I sent him a DM and I said, I have an idea for a podcast. It's called Terrible Thanks for Asking. I have hundreds and hundreds of emails in my inbox from people who are going through terrible stuff, and I just want to talk about that. And that's not a good pitch, necessarily, to be like, I have no experience. Would you like to make a podcast with me? But Hans replied, and we made one pilot episode, and then we got to make 10 episodes, and now it's been almost three years that we've been doing this. Do you remember the first episode? Oh, God, yeah. It's called Sad Nora and the Secret Baby, and... I had just had a secret baby. I had not told hardly anybody in my life, including Hans, until maybe a couple weeks before that I was pregnant and that I was about to be a mom to another child. In between Aaron dying and the podcast coming out, I had met somebody. I'd met a new man and I'd fallen in love And I'd gotten pregnant unexpectedly, and I was so happy, and I felt so bad. 
for being happy and I felt guilty and then I felt ashamed for feeling sad and guilty when how lucky are you to ever experience love or to have the entire Rube Goldberg machine that is your reproductive system actually work and create a human being inside of you. And I had all of these awful, complicated feelings all mixed up at once. And I sat in a studio with a two-day-old baby and I recorded that episode, which was not, um, that was not part of our plan, but it felt like the right way to start stuff, which is to set this tone that just the show is called Terrible Thanks for Asking. And I mean, there's a certain part of the population who will never listen to that show based only on the title, right? And probably any other time in my life, I would have been one of those people. I would have been like, uh, no, thanks. I would prefer to not know. And sad stories are never just sad. And most really happy stories are never just happy. Like all of these life experiences that we have, they're all tangled up with one another. And I think part of the loneliness that we feel when we're struggling is that we feel like if we are struggling, how can we ever feel anything else? And if we're happy, how can our pain have been real or how can it be real? That was a very lonely place for me to be. And so episode zero was our first episode for that reason. You know, it must be such a different perspective to hear pain so much, like to just hear so much trauma and pain in the way people tell their stories, especially telling stories that they've not told before. How has it made you, if at all, think differently about humanity or about yourself or about the shared experience or about the way connection works? Like what have been your lessons? The thing that I've learned and the thing that I'm reminded of nearly every time I do an interview is the way that we try to rank suffering and how it is our natural inclination when somebody shares something with us to try to fix it, to try to fill that silence. And I've had to fight that urge within myself in interviews to let the pain sit there and let the silence sit there so that somebody else can sort through what this story means to them instead of just trying to make it more palatable for me. I've also learned that nobody wins when we try to compare one kind of grief against another because you really only know your own experience. There is not some sort of objective measure for it. And so I will be honest, after my husband died, when people would email me and say, I know how you feel. I just lost my favorite dog. I would say like, do you know how I feel? And the answer is no, you don't. And I also don't know how you feel about whoever you've lost or whatever you have been through. So that is a very human reflex that we have to either minimize our own pain for somebody else or to elevate our pain above somebody else's. And Watching that in other people has helped me notice that in myself. So I want to shift topics a little bit. After the shooting at Tree of Life, a synagogue in Pittsburgh, as many listeners know, you did a three-episode series in Pittsburgh. What were the takeaways from that? Like, how was that? What did you learn? Uh, why was that important? God, that was a really, that was a really intense series to do, and also probably one of my favorite projects that we've worked on, there was, as probably all of your very smart listeners know, 
a huge mass shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. And like everybody else in America, we heard about it. And then probably like five minutes later, there was another shooting and we got an email from a congregant at a nearby synagogue a couple days after the shooting. And he said to us, can you come here? There's so many people feeling so many kinds of pain. And will you just talk to us? And we went out there as a team. We took four people out there and we knew that we were not going to talk about the shooter. We just were not going to offer that any airspace. And we knew that we wanted to talk to different people in Pittsburgh about the ripple effect that an act of violence like that has on a community. And there is no sort of like community capital C, like monoculture in any city. But especially in Pittsburgh, the shooting was felt in different parts of the city in contrast to the reaction to it, in contrast of the shooting of um, Antoine Rose, who was a black teenager, 17 years old, who was unarmed and shot by a police officer. And there's a way to, as you know, to talk about all of these forms of violence that doesn't minimize one or another, but says, look, like this is all a problem. People are hurting from these things. And however your empathy is able to stretch in the one direction towards people who were in their synagogue just getting ready to worship, can you please, I do know that the vast majority of my listeners are white women who are my age, and the 2016 election, who did uh, women who look like me vote for? Half voted for Trump, which is crazy. Right? It's bonkers. And so I do feel a big sense of responsibility to help a population of people who look like me, did not vote like me, but doesn't matter, really stretch their empathy and to consider points of view that may be outside of what is an easy get on the empathy scale when we have that opportunity to have a conversation that is not just about one act in one city, but to sort of draw those lines and connect those dots and get people to see a wider perspective. That's the work that is worth doing. Your world is, at least professionally, working with people who have had their hope challenged because terrible things have happened to them in their personal lives. And and I have to imagine that you get people who are really struggling with this idea of hope. What do you say to people? I mean, I say, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. I think Barbara Ehrenreich has this amazing book called Brightsided, and it's about sort of this really uniquely American sort of forced optimism right? That becomes oppressive. You know, like, stay on the sunny side. There's a silver lining to every cloud. But sometimes people do need to hear that, yes, things are very hard. Things are as hard as you think they are, and they're as heavy as they feel to you. And I absolutely feel like that. I absolutely feel like that often. And I lay in bed face down and I think, like, what's the point of of stuff? And I say that also understanding that I am a middle-class white woman who's got a body that works and really, like, my life is, like, pretty fine, pretty okay. And when I get like that, I do, I I hate this advice because it sounds like something that you would read on Pinterest and you're like, that wouldn't work. But I just try to say out loud to myself one good thing. 
that is happening. And then also I turn my phone off and I don't look at anything. I live in Minnesota. We have a lot of trees. I sit in front of my house and I listen to the wind in the trees. I try to do something that takes me out of my own head, which is often cranked down and looking at a phone or at a computer, and to be present in the moment, in just any pleasant moment. And it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be big. I love it. And what um, what's a piece of advice that stuck with you over the years? Hans's grandma is, Hans is my, my producer slash currently a friend now, which is great. And his grandma is, I think, like 100 years old, if not real close, real close. And she told Hans to tell me not to let anyone should on me and not to should on anyone else either. And, ooh, that I really, I really, I try to do that. It doesn't apply in all situations, but here's where it does. When someone is having a difficult time, I'm a fixer. I like to have a plan for them. Like, who better to solve your problems than me, a person who is not experiencing your problems? (laughs) Like, allow me. Allow me to step in and tell you exactly how to fix this situation that doesn't affect me. And I've tried not to do that because I know that when people did it to me, after Aaron died, when people told me that I should sell my house and move, when people told me I should not sell my house. I should keep that house. I should not move. I should stay put. When people told me I should stay in my job, just go back to my cubicle, try to fill out some PowerPoints, pretend I was a normal person. I felt like I was doing everything wrong. And I realized looking back, they were just trying to help. But the fact is, they didn't have to do any of this stuff. They didn't have a dead husband and a traumatized child. And their shoulds were not helpful. And when I do that to other people, I'm I'm not helping them unless they've specifically asked for advice, unless they've specifically asked for my opinion and a path forward. Really, they just want me to to listen and to be there. Well, thank you so much for joining us in Empathy of the People. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.